It's Latopia Daily, the web's first daily bulletin about writing and publishing. And now, here's Peter Cox. Hello, it's the start of another week here in Latopia Daily. In fact, it's our last full week before the summer break. Uh, and we're going to be away for about a month, um, coming back Monday the 18th of August, by which time we will be out of beta, I hope. We've been in beta ever, really ever since we started um, a few weeks ago. To learning, actually, because no one's ever done this before. And, you know, to begin with, everyone said, oh, daily podcast, you'll never manage to do that. And actually, I think it's worked quite well. We've got a few tweaks to make and a few um, bugs to iron out. Please do um, put a good word in for us uh, on iTunes. You could give us a nice review there, please. And you could tell your friends as well about the daily podcast and indeed about Latopia After Dark, which is weekly. That would be very much appreciated. Latopia After Dark, it's our last live episode this Friday, again before the summer break. But it will be continuing, that's the good news. Um, we recorded a special one-off that's going to happen a week on Friday, which is all to do with summer reading. And then we've got two best-of shows, which I'm very much looking forward to uh, putting together, actually. I think they're going to be pretty hilarious. And if you want to, if you if you miss us that much, and hopefully you will while we're away, um, remember there's a good six-month backlist now of all the Litopia After Darks, many of which are highly entertaining and all of which, I hope, have got lots of interesting information for writers. So you could do worse than uh, stock up your iPod with the past six months of Litopia After Dark to listen to. Now, as far as today is concerned, I want to talk to you about what I've been up to. And I got up this morning at six o'clock, which is how I, I like to arrange my day. I was in the gym by 6.30. I had a really good session today. I've had some pretty lousy sessions in the past few weeks, uh, which I'll tell you more about later. But um, I had a terrific session, and I didn't finish till 8 o'clock. I normally like to have an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, and I came out feeling great. And on the way back, I was thinking to myself, a discussion that I often have with writers, actually, and about one of the, the sort of more hidden aspects of the writing life, which is, really, it's quite unhealthy. And if all you do all day long is sit on your bottom and type then, you know, pretty soon you will turn into a fat slob. <laughs> and I can say that <laughs> without fear of contradiction because um, I know what I'm talking about. Agents actually are even worse because we sit on, on our bottoms all day long and uh, type on a screen. And when we're not doing that, we're going out and having um, rather rich lunches and sometimes dinners and very often drinks because that is very much part of the publishing scene. So I actually think the agent's life is unhealthier than the writer's life, which is not great. If you're in that situation, you might uh, consider this summer just setting one or two health targets for yourself. Um, I, I guess everyone's just about switched off now. <laughs> but I'm still going to go on um, and tell you one or two inside bits of information, because I don't, I don't think there's a gym actually in central London that I haven't been to at some point over the past few years. Um, and I'm very cynical about this whole thing. I think the health industry is basically a huge con I've rarely been to a really good gym. I very rarely come across a good personal trainer. Um, so I want to suggest one or two things um, that you might consider doing. One is just getting out, getting out of the house, getting away from your desk for a bit. 
And I know there's a temptation to, you know, buy maybe a home gym or a Nordic track or something like that. Uh, my feeling is don't do that. It's actually much better for you physically and mentally too to actually physically get outside for a little bit. Because it might be, if you're working hard, it might be the only time you get out that day. Um, so it, it is good to to get out to gym. Finding a, a good gym is almost impossible these days. I'm temporarily using a virgin gym here in central London, which is absolute crap, actually. It's a really bad gym. I've complained a number of times, but they don't. Uh, they really don't care. Uh, apart from anything else, the smell is horrible when you go in first thing in the morning. So, you know, I think they've got drainage problems. It's really awful. You need to get out about um, three times a week. Uh, do not make the mistake that uh, most people seem to make, and this is really where I think the whole fitness industry is incredibly cynical. Don't sign up for a, for a gym and then not use it. Uh, I'm sure that's how they make their profit in the business, that they oversell and then uh, maybe willingly, maybe not so willingly. They make the facilities just a little bit unpleasant to use, and you don't want to go every day. And before you know what's happening, you know, the old standing order is kicked in, and you've got to pay them for 12 months or 18 months or something stupid like that, and you don't really feel like going anymore. So, you know, make a commitment. You're going to be paying them, well, what in London can easily be 80, 90, 100 pounds a month, You've really got to use it. You've got to use that as incentive, even if the place is not pleasant. As I say, actually, most gyms are not, not great. Anyway, for the rest of the week, I thought it might be a nice idea just to give you one or two little hints and tips, sort of realistic hints and tips, actually, you know, from my own very hard-won experience, I mean, seriously hard-won um, experience, you know. And if you've um, ever slipped a disc, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Um about just generally getting a little bit fitter and about motivating yourself too, which is um, another deal, I think, for writers. That's enough from me. Let's hear from Eve about today in writing history. On the 14th of July, 1895, Frank Raymond Liebes, a British literary critic, was born in Cambridge, England. I'm going to quote directly from his exceptional Wikipedia page here and I would recommend a visit since it's full of fascinating information. F.R. Leavis was born about a decade after T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, D.H. Lawrence and Ezra Pound, literary figures whose reputations he would later be responsible for elevating. Leavis, in his writing, was one of the most influential figures in the 20th century English literary criticism. He introduced a seriousness into English studies, and the modern university subject has been shaped very much by Leavis's example. Leavis possessed a very clear idea of literary criticism, and he was well known for his decisive and often provocative judgments. I read an article in the Times Online recently where literary critics chose their most loathed books. I think it's just as revealing and interesting to hear people's most hated books, although we don't hear these half as often as their most loved. Peter Kemp, the Sunday Times fiction editor, chose Dostoevsky, saying, It nearly finished me. It was like having an illness. John Carey, the Sunday Times chief books critic, picked Virginia Woolf's Orlando. But Ian Rankin seems to have a never-ending list of books he can't get on with. Midnight's Children, Blood Meridian and The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And I quote, how can a book be harrowing and pedestrian at the same time? He added Lord of the Rings and Ancient Evenings by Norman Mailer. Phew, don't hold back, Ian. That's it. More tomorrow. Ah, the legendary F.R. Leavis. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, Eve. That was another enlightening piece. Um, am I right in thinking that you've got a, a slight touch of the head colds there. Well, I hope not, but if you have, get better soon. And now, let's catch up with the latest news from Donna. 
Thanks, Peter. The big news over the weekend was the recovery of a lost Shakespeare folio, thought to be the one stolen from the Durham University Library ten years ago. The story starts like a bad joke. Middle-aged book dealer Raymond Scott, who lives with his mother, walks into the Folger Library with a book he claims he bought in Cuba. He agrees to leave it with the library to obtain an appraisal. Library concludes it's stolen and calls the FBI. FBI calls the British Embassy. Book dealer is arrested. Here's where the story gets interesting. This used book dealer drives a Ferrari, or at least he owns one. He takes the bus to do his grocery shopping, so I can imagine how folks got suspicious. But there are 230 copies of this book known to exist. Now the police have hauled off truckloads of his books to be inspected. Durham University is already planning its welcome home party for the book, even before it's authenticated. What does Mr. Scott have to say? Quote, During the interview with police, I asked, how can you possibly know we are dealing with the same book? They shuffled in their seats and looked very uncomfortable at that point. I have done nothing wrong. I came by the manuscript through contacts in Cuba and took it to the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. I even suggested the Washington Post should be contacted about my discovery, which is not the act of a person with something to hide. I am afraid the celebrations at the University of Durham were premature. It is not the manuscript that was stolen. The police are welcome to ask me anything, including my inside leg measurement, but I have not done anything wrong at all. End quote. So it would seem that there's more to this story. Did Mr. Scott legitimately buy this book in Cuba? Is it stolen or was it from a legitimate source? About $30 million rides on the answer. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. I just love stories like this. They tick all the boxes for me, absolutely. You've got larger-than-life characters, fantastic plot twists and counter-twists, cons, frauds, double-crosses. Um, you've got forgery. You've got this whole world of sort of art, fraud and theft and... Uh, big supervillains, and it's all real. I, I love this kind of thing. I'm surprised, actually, we don't have more movies on this subject. It's much more interesting than, you know, your, your typical bank heist. Barack Obama had kind of an up-and-down weekend with writers. He was asked for the first time on the campaign trail if he had any advice for young writers. He said that knowing how to write is important in today's job market and that knowing how to text message won't necessarily help anyone land a good job. He recommends keeping a journal to learn how to write and how to think. He also recommended reading to children. So far, so good. But apparently some authors, jealous of Obama's literary success, have formed a Facebook group called Authors Against Obama. These are writers who apparently are upset by the fact that Obama was an unknown written up in the newspapers at age 28 who was approached by a literary agent. The agent signs him, he gets a contract with Simon & Schuster, and then, having missed his deadline, gets another contract and a $40,000 advance. Then, even though the contract was for a book on race relations, he turns in a memoir. Okay, I can see how this is unusual, but I know lots of writers who moan and groan about other writers' success. The book wasn't well written, they say. The plot stank. The characters were cardboard. And you know what? I don't want to hear it. Complaining about someone else's success is an excuse for failure. The whiners seem to reason that if someone else got lucky, then the publishing industry is arbitrary and just doesn't know a good thing. Look at all the great writers getting passed over, they say, meaning themselves, of course. I love seeing unknown writers who become bestsellers. It gives me hope. 
I say quit whining, quit being jealous of other writers, and get back to your own writing. Sour Grapes takes up way too much energy. I couldn't agree more. I think that there are far too many places on the internet, not Litopia, thank heavens. We're a very positive community. Um, well, uh, writers and would-be writers and disappointed, failed, disillusioned writers get together and just bitch. And what's the point? Save, save your time, save your energy, and focus on your own work. Um, is one very important realisation that uh, many people don't have about the publishing business. It's, it's all private money. They can do with their money what they want. They have no obligation whatsoever to publish, you know, quotes, good writing. They publish what they want to. Full stop. End of discussion. The Japanese are way ahead of us on the cell phone digital books craze. The ebook market went from 4.5 billion yen in 2004 to 35.5 billion yen last year. Of that, 28.3 billion yen was for mobile phone content. One of the hottest trends right now is digital comic books, and the main buyers are women in their 20s. What does that mean for us? Well, I think the Kindle is going to have some tough competition once the cellular companies here get into the market. Cell phones are way more portable, and people are more likely to pull them out to read while sitting in a line or on the bus. And it also means we, as writers, are going to have to start thinking about content we can put onto mobile devices in smaller segments. Shorter chapters and even short stories are going to become more popular. Smart writers are going to be looking at these trends and trying to get ahead of the market. Those are today's top stories, Peter. Links to these and other stories can be found on the Right Report. I hope all our listeners have a marvellous Writing Monday. Thank you very much, Donna. Fantastic, as always. Um, just a little footnote on that. I'm uh, the proud owner uh, over the past two or three days of a brand new Nokia N95, a state-of-the-art piece of communication equipment. That is really, I think it knocks spots off the iPhone. Um, you can do anything with it. It's quite extraordinary, actually. I um, mean, you know, you could just sit anywhere and run your business. And it's got on it, it's got a bit of software called Moby Book and quite a few free sample bits of books. And I've got to say, the experience of reading um, one of these classic books on the screen is utterly, completely dire. It's just so depressing. I showed, um, showed an author a couple of days ago what it was like, and we both agreed that it made us lose the will to live. <laughs> So let's let's see how that market develops. I'm sure it will in some way, but um, maybe Moby Book on the N95 is not the way to go. We'll catch up with you again tomorrow. Catch Litopia Daily five days a week from www.litopia.com.